We got a theme we've been working through for the last couple of weeks that we started. It's called the practice of Scripture. And uh, we started a couple of weeks ago realizing that though the the Bible might be one of the most selling books uh, in North America, it's often not one that's the most understood book. And uh, as a church, obviously, we want to, you know, the Bible is our source of guidance, uh, our boundaries. Uh, it, it, It just guides us in our faith. It points us to God. And a couple of weeks ago, we started off talking about how the story of the Bible is is just all over the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And how wherever you find yourself reading, it's so important to understand which part of the story you're in. And then last week, we talked about how there's authority in scripture. But often that word authority in scripture, sometimes we just think it's it's on in that word or letter or on the pages. But we discovered that last week that really it's God's authority expressed through scriptures. And I just encourage you, if you didn't connect with us the last couple of weeks, it's so important to go back and listen to some of these talks because they really build the foundation for where we're going um, this month. And, and today we're, we're talking about something that's a little different. It's, I'm calling it the living tradition. And um, some people might, that might sound, uh, maybe it might even sound Catholic or uh, ancient, uh, but I'm going to describe what that, what that is in essence. And it's much more than that. Um, if you were to go in my bedroom and go under my bed, you might find some dust bunnies, honestly. I mean, what bed doesn't have dust under it? So no one has the perfect underneath bed, right? But there's a box under my bed, and this box is an old box, probably uh, 25 or 30 years old, and it's a real treasured box for me because in that box, there's special items that go back like 25 years. There are some memories, there are some pictures, there's some special items in there, and there's special notes in there. And the majority of those special notes were not just from friends or family. The majority of those notes were from my wife, Franca, we've been married uh, 23 years now. And so if you go back and read some of those notes, they're super special to me. And uh, they might, hopefully might, they might be special to you too, but they're super special to me. And what makes them special is not the paper that they're on. It's not the grammar that my wife used. It's not the creativity because she's a great artist and there would be these really cool pictures in there that she would also share in those notes. But what was so special about those notes, if you kind of like read them all together, is there's this core message in those notes. There's this real core message throughout all these notes and almost every single note that Frank gave me and continues at times to give me. And that, I want you to have that picture in your mind as we try and understand the core message of the scriptures. And I want to call it this living tradition. And that's partly what makes the Bible special because there's ideas and stories and there's, there's themes that existed even before the written text ever showed up. So today's going to be a little bit of a different kind of talk, and it's going to, I'm going to invite you to really dig in and really engage because we're going to walk through some things that will be important, and some will feel like it's a teaching moment uh, rather than just inspirational moments, and I think it's going to be so important because here's the, here's the idea here. The Bible points us to a message that existed beyond itself in a sense, and so I, I, want, to, I want to give you a sense of what that looks like, and if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. And um, here's, a, here's a sample of the early church, the first century, just starting to grow. And here's Acts chapter 6. And I think it gives us a picture of what I'm talking about. So read it with me, verse 1. 
In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, talking about the apostles, the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will in turn, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, uh, um, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of daily disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is like a snapshot of the early church starting to grow in the first century. And the book of Acts, which we read it in, is part of Scripture. We see it as part of the New Testament, and we use it and call it Scripture. And Acts is particularly a historical book. It's not gospel. It's not letter. It's not like Revelation. It has a historical feel to it, and it tells us the story of the early church led by the Holy Spirit. This scene is a beautiful scene because we get a sense that the church is starting to grow, and it's starting to explode in growth, and it's hard to handle that growth, not only the growth of how many people are coming Coming to know Jesus, but also because the church is compassionate and they're a reflection of God's kingdom and they're serving one another and their needs and they're serving the needs around them and they are serving Hebraic and Greek widows. They're giving them food. They're helping them in their time of need. And there's a tension. There's a bottleneck that the apostles themselves who were organizing this could not handle it themselves. And so the apostles, they got to delegate ministry to people beyond themselves. And if you read the scriptures or even understand how the church is made up, often a name for that is they, they, they create deacons, uh, which really means a servant, someone who's serving or oversees ministry. In our church, we call them ministry team leaders, but essentially they're deacons, people who oversee pockets of ministry because one or two people can't handle all of that, right? And the reason the apostles did this was because they had another focus, a main focus. They loved serving the widows. They loved seeing this happen, but they could not handle it all. They had another focus that was more primary for them specifically. And we read it in verse, 12, in verse 2. They says, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables. Now, they're not saying that waiting on tables is derogatory. They're saying, we can't do both. It's impossible. And we can't neglect the ministry of the word. Or if you look at a, like the ESV, the NRSV, like a more original version, it would say just the word of God. We can't neglect the word of God to do this. Verse 4, it says, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're realizing their focus. They understand their important role to know God's word, to pass it on. To helping people. Now, you might think, well, what does that mean? Did they just like say Tuesday nights we're going to study Ephesians together? Maybe the book of Hebrews. Hey, you're having questions about Revelation. Why don't we talk about that? Let's, let's get together and compare the four Gospels. No, those, those books didn't exist when in, the, in, in this scene. Those books weren't even written. And so when they say the word of God, what do they mean? 
that they should not neglect the word of God and they should be focused on ministering the word of God. Well, one obvious idea is that they had the Old Testament scriptures, that the, the story of Israel was, they were, the early church was rooted in the story of Israel. So they were rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, but it's much more than that. Because the story was being fulfilled in Jesus. And the core message of the early church that was received and passed on from Jesus was considered God's word, God's message to them. So the life and the teachings of Christ, the cross and the resurrection, and the the interactions that the first apostles had with Christ were being received and then passed on to these first followers of Jesus. In fact, the apostle Paul in Colossians says, let the message of Jesus or let the word of Jesus dwell in your hearts through faith. It's very likely that he wrote that line before the gospels were in written form. And so they were written before anyone, anybody had Matthew or Mark in their hands. Before Matthew and Mark started to pen the, the life and teachings of Jesus from their personal interactions. And yet the apostles did not want to neglect this word of God. They didn't want to neglect the word of God or the ministry of the word of God because it was good news for the world. And it showed the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel being displayed through Jesus and then through the church. And Jesus lived this and told them this, and then they took it and they proclaimed it and they taught it. It's a couple of weeks ago, I think Derek used, uh, shared Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says the gospel is the power of salvation for those who believe. It was this word that invited people in to God's big story, to God's restoring humanity. And when people took that word in and received it and took that invitation, it began to work in them and transform them. It was powerful. And it resulted in things like forgiveness and transformation and brand new life. But for the sake of how we understand scriptures, how did they know it was God's word? If it wasn't written. See, today it's easy to say, hey, where'd you get that in the Bible? Give me a chapter and verse. Can you show me where in the New Testament? Where, where did Jesus say that? How did, how did Paul write this, right? But how did they know it if it wasn't written? Well, I guess you might ask me the same question. Like, how would you know if Franca truly loved you if you never saw the notes? I'd say, well, I do know. You say, well, how? I'd say, well, because she tells me all the time and she shows me and I see it. And so I didn't need the notes to know that. But as I look back to the notes, it bears witness to who she is and what, what she is in my life and the messages she told me and the love she shared with me. And we can, we can say that that was a living proof of the words in that box. And that's what we mean when we say living tradition. That the, the early Christ followers had a living tradition. And that's sometimes, something about the Bible that we often miss because we get the privilege of years later and centuries later that was written down and then copied and translated and printing press and now on our iPhones and we can just have it at random. But the living tradition came before the written tradition. And we get hints of this living tradition in the Bible. I'm just going to focus on the New Testament. And I think it's so important. So I'm going to invite you to track with me today because what we're learning today will help you and me read the Bible better and welcome its word for us. 
So Acts chapter 2, right? Luke tells us, who's writing this history of the church, that after the church started to explode in growth after the day of Pentecost, he says the church devoted themselves to a few things. And one of the things the church devoted themselves was to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the core message that the apostles received from Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord. Paul would later write to a church in Corinth that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised to life and he ascended. That God's main act in restoring broken humanity is found in Jesus. That's what the apostles taught. That's what the apostles passed on. That was, in a sense, a living tradition of faith for them. So Acts chapter 6, which we just read, right? They were devoted to this word. The apostle said, we're getting too busy and we can't neglect the word of God. We can't neglect, neglect this message, how Jesus came, fulfilled Israel's scriptures, showed us who God was. We can't neglect this. And so they saw the word as vital and they said, this needs to be our main priority along with prayer. And then they saw that message increase. And they said, so many people started coming to follow Christ. Even priests in the Jewish tradition started to follow Christ. It was powerful. And if you read through some of the sermons in, in the book of Acts, each sermon points to this core message. Each sermon points to Jesus as Lord. And the apostles knew what to preach before anyone ever held a New Testament in their hands. They knew what to preach before we ever got the written word. And you might say, well, that seems, how do we, how do we kind of like reconcile that with how we live our faith today? I want you to think about music for a second because music over the centuries, over generations is an amazing way to understand how this passes on because there's in music, there's things called motives or like themes that happen in music. There's phrases or patterns that people hear that they can catch where this music comes from or what style it's come from. And without ever writing them down, musical historians have discovered that these patterns have been passed on from generation to generation. So you talk to a classical musician, they're listening to some symphony and you hear them talk and say, oh, I hear, I, I hear a sense of Bach in that music. Oh man, I just, this is totally influenced by Mozart. Or, oh yeah, Beethoven, this is a Beethoven line and now they're, and so you're like, how do they know that? Because they've been listening to it. And over generations and now even centuries, a musician might, even if they don't have the music in front of them, can pick out and say, that's a Mozart-influenced phrase. Jazz musicians do the same thing. They can hear the influence and you hear someone say like, that totally sounds like Charlie Parker. Oh, this is like a John Coltrane influenced song I know. And oh, Duke Ellington kind of like made this line so popular back in the early 20th century. How do they know that? Because there's been these core ideas passed on orally through culture that are present in the music. And you know what? We see the same thing in the New Testament. When Paul instructs this church in Corinth in the first century in how to practice the Lord's Supper? What does he say in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians? He says, from what I've received from the Lord, I now pass on to you that Jesus took the cup or took the bread and broke it and said these words. And he took the cup and poured it, poured the wine and said these words. Isn't it fascinating? This common practice that was rooted in the Jewish Passover, that Jesus uh, you know, ate this Passover meal with his disciples before his death, that he taught them that this would apply to his death and to the cross, and he tells them, keep doing this over and over again as my followers. 
It's amazing because though we read it in the Gospels, Paul tells us about it in 1 Corinthians. And in terms of when the scriptures were written, 1 Corinthians were, wor- were written 10 or 15 years before the Gospels. But Paul is instructing this church about that. Well, how did Paul know to include what Luke would only write decades later? Because it was a living tradition. It was part of their tradition of faith. And it was orally passed on. And so Paul is addressing a church in A.D. 50 from what happened in A.D. 30 before the Gospels that were written in A.D. 60 or 7 were ever written. written. Because Christ's life and message was alive before the text was ever written. Here's another one that maybe you you missed, and and I've I've missed this uh, before until it, it jumped out at me through reading this week. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, there's a great scene that Luke tells us that Paul goes uh, to meet the elders of the Ephesian church and they're meeting together. It's an emotional moment because they, they think they're never going to see each other again. And Paul, uh, Paul is, is, is speaking to them on the shore and Luke tells us that Paul passes on this phrase. And he says, listen, I want to encourage you with this phrase that we've heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this line, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you might have read that on a Hallmark card. You might have read that. Someone might have told you that. Hey, come on. It's better to give than to receive. That's the better posture. And we, we attribute those words to Jesus. But those words were never, you won't find them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Because Luke heard Paul tell the Ephesian elders on the shore that he heard Jesus say these words. And he tells these elders to help them and encourage them in their posture as followers of Jesus. How does Paul know that? It's a living tradition. He's an apostle. It's been, it was part of what they knew of who Jesus was. John tells us this in his older age, maybe in his 80s or 90s, when he writes the letter, 1 John, in later in the New Testament. Just, I'll just read these words, and you'll get a glimpse of what this meant in this first century. John's telling these followers of Christ, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. You see what's happening here? This living tradition of faith in the person and message of Jesus Christ is being passed on to a group of people. And we read it like centuries later. We see it in 1 John chapter 1. It's awesome. But that's not how that was passed on at that time. So this living tradition of faith in the person and message of Jesus is being passed on. And why am, I, why am I pointing these things out? Because I want us to understand that the word of God, the word of God spread before the New Testament was ever written. That the core message of who Jesus is and what he's done and how he fulfilled Israel's story was passed on before the New Testament was ever compiled. And that there was this living and oral tradition within the New Testament that was alive. Now for us, this might feel strange. We're like, how is this possible? Like, you've, I've played broken telephone at a party, and I know that it doesn't work. 
right? You're like, how does that happen? And so you've played the game, right? You're 10 people and you're like, what are you going to say? So I say like, my mom slipped on the floor and I pass that on to someone and they say it and then they say it and then they say it. And by the time it comes to the next person, it's like my grandfather tripped over my mother's, you know, leg and broke his tooth on the floor and there was blood all over the place. You're like, how did you get that from what I said? Like that's our version of oral tradition. Of course, For us, our brains don't memorize like they did in the first century or even centuries after that. Well, here's one example that's not in the Bible. So we've heard of like Greek literature, Iliad and Odyssey, and it was attributed to someone named Homer. And they read this, this Greek literature from centuries past. And in the 20th century, scholars discovered that the lines from Homer's writings were composed over centuries and actually transmitted orally to people before it was ever written. Over 20,000 lines memorized over generations because musicians and poets would say it and sing it over crowds and audiences over and over and over again. And they heard and learned and memorized these words and they became attributed to Homer. And we just pick up a book in the library called Iliad and Odyssey and don't recognize how it ever came to be. And that's not broken telephone. It's different, right? But see, Christ followers in the first century, they recited the Lord's Prayer all the time. They took the words received from Jesus that he broke the bread and poured the wine and heard them over and over again. When Paul writes to the Philippian church and he quotes a hymn from the first century and saying, Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and became obedient, even obedient to death. And then God raised him up and exalted him. They heard this hymn. They sang this song in their house churches among themselves when they broke bread. This became part of their living tradition of faith. And how many times if Jesus would have said, Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if he would have recited that maybe three times a day, how much more did the early church hear those words over and over and over again? And we might have to go to Matthew chapter 22 to read it, but it was in their minds and their hearts, and they knew that this came from Jesus. It was a living tradition of faith that was alive and powerful, But how did it get from oral to written? See, over time, the church learned to lean on its resources, to bind it to its past, the Old Testament scriptures, the work of Christ, and guarantee the living tradition of faith move into the future. And over time, we see this take place. And don't worry, we're not going to do like a scholarly lecture on that today. (laughs) But I want to I just show you this timeline, and you can, look, you can see it on the screen, because this timeline helps us understand, how did this happen? How did this happen? And so, so we know that Jesus was, we're going to say Jesus was born in the year zero. We know that because, you know, history was split, uh, and Jesus' life and, and cross and resurrection was instrumental in kind of understanding how we know history. Officially, it could have been year four, could have been a couple of years before, but for the sake of simplicity, let's choose the number zero. Jesus is born, and Jesus lives. And at the age of 30, Jesus moves into starting ministry, and Jesus speaks, and he teaches, and he heals, and he performs miracles, and he ends up um, going to the cross, 
and he dies and he resurrects and he ascends and people see him. And so in these first 33 years, we can say Jesus lived and died and resurrected and Jesus speaks. But in between Jesus speaking or Jesus resurrecting and the first New Testament letter, we have 15 or 18 years. And in that time period, it's not Jesus speaking, it's the church speaking. They're sharing the living traditional tradition faith of Jesus over and over with one another. So the church is speaking. But in, in, in the year 50, roughly 45 or 50, the church begins to write. So Jesus speaks, the church speaks, and now the church starts to write. One of the first letters is probably um, the, the letter to the to, uh, to uh, probably Th- Thessalonians, and then after Corinthians, and then on and on it would go. But Paul's was, Paul was the first one to pen part of the New Testament. Only 10 or 15 years later, the Gospels start to be written. And so we start seeing the church writing first letters. And we just saw in Paul's letters and even the book of Acts, they're already the living tradition of faith is there. And the church begins to write over 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's amazing. But what happens is you're like, well, what did these letters do? What happened to them? Well, they started to get circulated. Yeah, first they got to Colossae and Ephesus and, uh, you know, Corinth. But beyond that, it was, it started to spread. And after, you know, a couple of decades, other people were kind of clinging to these copies And it began to teach the church and teach Christians and teach people what it meant to be the church. Well, this went on for over 100 years. And in the year 200, there's a list. There was a list that was found actually, I think in the 18th century, archaeological digs found this list from from the year 200 or so that listed 21 books of the New Testament that were in circulation for over 100 years from when these letters started to be written. In other words... There was church leaders in the first and second century that, started, that were using Matthew as a discipleship journal or a discipleship manual, that were using Mark to help people understand who Jesus was, that they were looking at Paul and saying, oh, this is how Paul applied the message of Jesus in Corinth. How can we apply this here? And all of a sudden, these letters and these writings were circulated for over 100, 150 years. And by the year 200, it's already a consensus. Like these are the letters that bear witness to the living tradition that we find in the teachings of Jesus. And that goes on and on for another 150, 200 years. And by the year 367, a church leader by the name of Athanasius in Alexandria, he writes this list of 27 books that we now found in the, in the New Testament. And it becomes canonized, similar to how the Old Testament was canonized. And so why did I like, go through all this? <laughs> Why did I, like, help us just kind of see 400 years in two minutes? And the reason is, is that the living tradition of faith went from oral to written in 350 years. That starting in Acts 6, when we're reading that the apostles said, we can't neglect the word of God. We must pay attention to the ministry of this word. This word must be spread. It goes from oral to written in 350 years. And it helps us see that that what gets written and what we read in our scriptures today bears witness to this living tradition. And so how does this affect how we read the Bible? 
Because that's part of our series. And today was a little bit of like a let's pause and do something a little bit more academic to give us a foundation on what's, what we're really handling here. How does this affect how we read the Bible? And I'm going to wrap up with this and just list it really quickly, three or four things. The first thing is that this living tradition tells us this, that Scripture is more than the words on the page. I don't mean more like we're going to find more of God's truth somewhere out in the world. I mean that it's more than just the page. It's more than just the word, the font, the translation, modern translation you're reading. It's rooted in the living tradition of faith. What we're reading in our scriptures points back and witnesses to this living tradition of faith. That's what the living tradition means. It also means this. Here's the second thing it means. It means that living tradition means that it's rooted in the life and teachings and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus came and he lived and he taught and he died and he rose and he ascended. And this word is always preached. Jesus is Lord. And our New Testament bears witness to that. In fact, sometimes other letters would pop up. The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Barnabas. And it had these names of like Christian leaders in the first century. And so someone would, would, they found that and said, oh, maybe there's something here that we missed. And then they'd read that letter and say, man, we have all this other literature that we, all this, uh, this living tradition of faith. This, the Gospel of Judas does not bear witness to this living tradition. I don't, this is not really what we've been actually digesting for 200 years. And so it got put aside. And the Gospel of Barnabas got put aside, and the Gospel of Thomas got put aside. Not because they said, you know, the writing was bad. It's because it didn't bear witness to the living tradition of faith. Because the word preached was always Jesus is Lord, fully man, fully God. The living tradition also does this, and this is so important for us, especially as Protestant evangelicals. The living tradition gave birth to the church. The living tradition of faith gave birth to the church. What does it mean? That the church became a witness to this living tradition. And the living tradition became a foundation of the church's life and practices. So when, when Luke says the word increased and many came to faith... He's saying that, he's saying that, that um, communities of Christ followers started to pop up because people started to believe in Jesus because the word, the message, the living tradition of faith was preached and spread. Now, it's important to understand that this living tradition gave birth to the church. And I say that because sometimes I hear people, um, and I would maybe say ignorantly say this. They'll say something like, they love to say a line like this, you know? The church didn't create the Bible. Oh, no, sorry. They, they'll say, uh, yeah, the church didn't create the Bible. The Bible created the church. What they're, what they're trying to say by saying the Bible created the church is they're trying to say, we can't get out of this book. Make sure that we follow it. And that is true. Our authority is in, this, is in, the, is in these writings. But what they fail to understand is that the church gave birth to this Bible. The living tradition of faith passed on, gave birth to people writing. And then those writings were continually used for 200 years. And then those writings were confirmed as a, as a bearing witness to the living tradition of faith. And then we have the 27 books of our New Testament in the 4th century. And so what I want to say is that the living tradition gave birth to the church because it, we come out of Jesus. And then 
The church is important. The church gives birth to the Bible. It doesn't mean that the church is above the Bible. It means that God used the church, their passing on of this living tradition of faith, to bring what was always bearing witness to who Jesus was over and over again. Jesus spoke, the church wrote. We have the scriptures. And here's what one author says, and, and then um, we'll close in prayer together. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, he's an amazing biblical historian. He says the 27 books of the New Testament were composed not in order to satisfy historical curiosity about the events they recount, but to bear witness to a faith in the action of God that took place through these events. So I'm going to end this with, I'm going to just tell you one line here as we end, and it's not on the screen, just listen. This, we are rooted as Christ followers in this living tradition of faith that the Bible bears witness to. And so why do we keep going back and immersing ourselves in the scriptures? Because the scriptures bear witness to the living tradition of faith that's rooted in Jesus Christ. And so we read and we teach and we encourage and we meditate on and we sit under and we apply. And that's what the rest of the series is going to be. We're going to hit these practical ideas the next few weeks. But we do that because we're rooted in a living tradition of faith that our scriptures point us back to, bear witness to. And so when we read the scriptures, I just I pray that just if you get anything out of today, recognize how beautiful and robust and true and wonderful the scriptures you have in your hands that point you back to this incredible living tradition of faith that transformed people and lives in the world. Maybe for some of you, I opened up a can of worms. Leave your questions on the feed. Let us know. Send me questions. Uh, that would be awesome because we've got to grapple with this stuff. But I'm going to close here and just pray. And uh, we're going to close a little differently today and, and just, just pray briefly as we do. Our Heavenly Father, yeah, God, we are, when we, when we hold um, the Bible in our hands, it's two collection volume, Old and New Testament, written over centuries, three different authors. And as we particularly read the New Testament, just showing us your son, Jesus. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful how meaningful and purposeful and important it is, God, that we come to see that even before these words were ever put to parchment or paper or a digital screen, they were alive and active. Jesus came, lived, and died, and rose. And God, a movement of people coming to know and discover forgiveness and faith and transformation through that. And we become part of this living tradition. And for some God who are just watching today for the first time and just exploring, I pray that there just be a, a drawing to them, God, that you are real and alive. That they would want to get connected to you. That the scriptures will be a help to that, a guide to that, but that they want to be connected to you. God, that's our heartbeat. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.